in my mind and I would I would encourage you to open your Bible sometime and, and just spend time reading through the three short chapters and I, I, I guarantee you I guarantee you that as with every passage of scripture reading through the book of Habakkuk will be a blessing an inspiration a challenge an encouragement you name it and it's there within that particular book so that's what we want to speak about this morning. During the week when I've been preparing, I came across an article by this particular gentleman, uh, Rosenberg, who is uh, a best-selling author in the United States. His mother was a Gentile, as this is how he's described in his biography, a Gentile, in other words, one of us. Uh, his father was a Jewish Orthodox, and he is an Evangelical Christian. And it's quite an amazing pilgrimage, Joel C. Rosenberg. And if you want to look that up, I think you'll find he has some amazing articles. And in 2012, there was a terrible shooting in Orlando. And he wrote an article about this. And I have read that over a couple of times last week. And if you look it up, that detail you'll find uh, on the Google, you'll find this article about suffering, which is really incredible. He also said in, a, in uh, another uh, place, talking of his book is called The Auschwitz Escape. And he said, the question shouldn't be, where am I? Why are you a Christian in a death camp condemned for trying to save Jews? He said, nobody should ever ask that question. And there were some Christians who defended Jews and they ended up in concentration camps as well but he said the question shouldn't be asked you know why are you a Christian coming from a Jew why are you a Christian in a death camp condemned for trying to save Jews and his suggestion was this that shouldn't be the question the real question is why aren't all the Christians here now, I don't know what that does to you I can only tell you what that did to me. I was quite taken aback by that. The reality of that saying, why aren't all the Christians here? Because if Jesus had been here in person, where would he have been? He would have been out there defending. And yet, as we know, there was the church in Germany and for many years supported the movement that ultimately led to the slaughter of six million people. The question, why aren't all the Christians here? Now as I read that, I was struck by his use of the word, why? Why? I, I want to suggest to you this morning, that's one of the most used words in, in our vocabulary, why? You think back to when you were bringing up children what was it a series of? It wasn't just a series of give me a biscuit. It was a question of why this? Why that? Why something else? And, and that's an, an amazing thing with children. Their minds are so inquisitive. And that's how they imbibe knowledge. And it's great when a child is like that. I remember the first time in Dalkeith, this child asked his dad, if that tree is older than the leaves, why are the leaves dying and not the tree? 
Now, have you ever thought of such a question? That sort of thing would never have crossed my mind. And there he was, driving in the car with his child. The tree is older than the leaves, and yet it's the leaves that are dying. Why? Thank goodness it wasn't me. <laughs> and, and often the word why is used in relation to questioning God. And I'm sure you'll agree with that. It's used often to ask a question about God. And you know, whenever I find myself asking God a question, why is this, for example, happening? And I begin to feel, oh, should I be questioning God? My mind always goes to the cross. Because when you look at the cross and the Saviour on the cross, what was one of the seven sayings of the cross? Why? Why? Have you forsaken me? And there in that moment of weakness brought on by the suffering he had endured physically, by the fact that he had been emotionally and psychologically torn apart, and now he was being spiritually punished because of the sins that you and I would commit, he suddenly felt, here I am, who knew no sin and being made sin. Why? And it was as if God the Father had deserted him as he bore your sins and mine on his body on the tree. And not only is it used by Jesus, the word why, it's also used by the prophets and, of course, in the Psalms. If you look at the book of Psalms, and if you were to underline every time the word why appears, I think you'd be amazed. So that here we are. So this morning, I wanted to talk, think about the book of Habakkuk and ask the question, well, who was he? And what, where did he live? And then what did he say? Let me just run through this to remind you of how it came to uh, Habakkuk. From Egypt to Canaan, starting with the, the exodus from Egypt, you have Moses who lived in that era, roughly. All these dates are approximate, 1350 to 1230. You had the exodus, about 1280. You had Joshua, and then you had Israel crossing the Jordan, somewhere between 1240 and 1220. After Moses and Joshua died, you had a period when Israel was ruled by the judges. And you had such names as Eli. And then you had Samuel, the best judge of all. And then you had many other judges. And you read about them all in the book of Judges. And it's an incredible record. And then the people got sick and tired of having judges changing all the time. And they looked at the surrounding nations and they said, we want a king to rule over us. And so you had a period of monarchy. And when the 12 tribes moved out of Egypt, apart from the two and a half that remained on the other side and didn't go into the promised land, they still remained a united monarchy. And of course the first king was Saul. And then you had David. And then you had Solomon. And then you had what's known as the divided kingdom because after Solomon died his son Rehoboam became king and the old folks came to give him advice and said look if you continue to be like your dad and rule like him the nation will prosper and you'll have loyalty and love and then he went to the young people and he said what do you think what's your advice to me and they said listen you're the king now not your father forget all about him you do what you want and he did and as a result of that the kingdom became divided and you had Israel with 10 tribes and they had 19 kings and you had Judah with two tribes and 20 kings and then came the exile, and that's when the people were led away by Shalmaneser into Assyria 
to be in bondage there and to be in slaves. And then you had the exile here in 587 when Judah was exiled by Nebuchadnezzar and taken off to Babylon. Now 30 years before that date of 587, you had these prophets... And these prophets were working in the nation. And they were telling people, look what's going to happen to you. Look at your behavior. God is going to judge you. And he's going to raise up a nation. A nation which is ruthless and cruel and corrupt. And he's going to use that nation to punish you. For the way you have constantly rebelled against me and rejected my word and my ways. And so there you had the period of exile in in Babylon. And there you get the history of people like Daniel and his friends. So here we have uh, Habakkuk here. And he's in this period when the nation of, uh, of Israel has been already dispersed into bondage. The nation of Judah is deteriorating spiritually, turning more and more away from God. And the period of exile is coming. And God is promising in the years leading up to here, during these 39 years, that God is going to judge the people. And he raises up prophets like Habakkuk. And that's where Habakkuk fits in. So it's before the great punishment of the exile that that Habakkuk begins to minister God's word. So I want to look at the dilemma that he experienced. Habakkuk's complaint. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. And so there you have the dilemma. He was looking and he knew what he wanted the people to do. He knew how people should live. And he was preaching his heart out along with Jeremiah and the others to get the people to listen to God. And yet nothing was happening. The people were not responding they were hardening their hearts. And so he asks God, please explain to me what's going on here. Why aren't you listening to me? Why don't you rescue me? Why have I to look at injustice? And why do you tolerate wrong? Now here's his humanity. This man was a real guy. And his humanity shines through in these things. He wasn't living in some airy-fairy plane of unreality. He was someone who was earthed and knew what was going on all around him and could see God being rejected and he could see punishment coming in the Babylonians. And he said, what are you doing? And so he had this love for God signified through his faithfulness in preaching but at the same time he couldn't make sense of what was happening to his nation. He was not what we call today a happy chappy. The invasion of the the, uh, Babylonians and it was during the reign of the 18th king that these words, Jehoiakim, two more to go and they had very short reigns, one a few months and the other just a couple of years and then it came to the end. So there you are, he and his friends were facing this dilemma. The nation has an amazing history of God's love, God's goodness, God's kindness, God's guidance. This is he, they had prophets telling them constantly how they should live. We're here doing what you want us to do and yet 
the nation is sinning and disappointing you. And of course the biggest question of all, Babylonians? They're so cruel. They're so corrupt. You know they used to take prisoners and they would skin them alive. They would do all sorts of horrendous things by way of torture. And his mind couldn't take it in that God would allow a nation as cruel and barbaric as that to fulfill his purpose. It didn't make sense. Not in his mind as a hum human being. And so he faced this terrible dilemma. Now, the important lesson is in relation to Habakkuk, I think, God allows us to ask why. God allows us to ask why. Here's a man with a heart for God, appointed to ministry, faithfully fulfilling it, along with two other, three other colleagues. And what happens? He finds his faith being shaken to the core. He finds his head in turmoil. What is going on here? And he turns to God and he said, why? Why? I find meditating on that so helpful. God allows us from his son, from Habakkuk, from the psalmists, he allows us to ask the question, why? I think that's super. And the problem that we create when we ask why is that we focus on what we've put here as the negative points. We look around us and we see the reality of what's happening and how it impinges in our lives and the, all the bad things that we see around these events that are happening and we're looking at all these negatives negative points and that's where we go wrong as Christians no harm at all in asking why but when we do it we should look at the big picture the full picture not just a part of the picture this lady's name Sevilla uh, Martin she visited a Mrs. Doolittle along with her husband. That's, a, that's an, an interesting name, isn't it? Mrs. Doolittle. Isn't she featured in some book, isn't it? Uh, uh, is it Water Babies? Mrs. No, no, I'm thinking of Mrs. Do as you would be done by and all that stuff. I'm mixing it up. But anyway, she visited this lady who had been really ill for almost 20 years. Her and her husband, uh, Sevilla. And... Uh, Mr. Martin spoke to this lady. They developed a big friendship. And he said to her, what is the secret of your hopefulness? Because despite 20 years of this severe illness, this lady radiated a sense of hope. And Mr. Dula Mr. Martin said, what is the secret? And here's her answer. His eye is on the sparrow. That was all she said. That was her answer. His eye is on the sparrow. And it comes from the words of Jesus. And I don't know if I brought it. Did I bring it? I was doing something because I said, oh, here it is. 
it said about the words of Jesus where he said, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin. Now its value was the equivalent of a day's wage for a labourer. Now put down here Matthew 10, 29 to 31. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin. It was uh, a sparrow was cheap food for the poor. But a sparrow was also a pet, and some of the Roman emperors had them as pets. Not a single sparrow falls to the ground without your father knowing it. Now listen to this. I tried to work this out. It says the coin that he used was a sixteenth of a denarius. A sixteenth of a denarius. So that was a day's wage for a labourer. Now if you take the minimum wage in our country, it's £7.20. Multiply that by 8, you've got £57.60. Now divide that by 16, you get £3.60 for two sparrows or one each. And what did Jesus say? What is the price of two sparrows? Not a single sparrow worth £1.80 in today's language falls to the ground without your father knowing it. £1.80 hardly buys you a cup of coffee. £1.80. A sparrow falls to the ground dead. And God knows it. And he goes on to say, Is not your faith and has not the life of his children worth more than a sparrow? Now that lady, Mrs. Martin, went away and within a short time she had written a hymn. This hymn has become famous. Uh, it's a lady called Ethel Waters made it very famous. And it's called, this is it, Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Now there you go. That's the hymn that came out of that. And what do I say about the negative things? When we go to ask God the question, we're looking at the things that are discouraging us. We're looking at the things that are casting shadows over our lives. We're looking at the loneliness we're experiencing in the situation. And we say, oh, I just want away from this. And she said, look, those are all negatives. Think of the positives. Who's with you? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on a sparrow, one pound sixties worth. So I know he watches me. What a challenge that is. Look at the disaster. He envisaged the nation being punished. He could see it coming and he knew why. Their sinfulness, their rejection of God would bring that upon themselves. Why? Well, the Babylonians were going to be used, but the back of their minds... They were wanting rid of this nation anyway because they wanted rid of God. Their God. And their God was supreme, they thought. 
Habakkuk anticipates what suffering is coming and he cringes. He knows in that situation. And this personalizes Habakkuk. He's going to be around. He and his family are going to suffer the same as everybody else when the Babylonians invade. So what does he do? You read the book of Habakkuk. He envisages the hard times. Food will be scarce. The health problems that will come. And the suffering. It was not a pleasant picture to dwell on. That was the disaster. And so often in life we face what we see as disasters. Understandable then that when we look at things with the wrong perspective, we get depressed and down. But look at the dedication. When you read the book of Habakkuk, this is where you'll find your spirit being lifted. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my salvation. He knew that whatever happened when the Babylonians came in, if he was one of their prey, he knew that God would be with him whenever he was facing it. And he was going to remain 100% dedicated to God. I will rejoice in the Lord. He's going to keep in that relationship with God. In the middle of it, it's never going to deviate. I will be joyful in God of my salvation. He was trusting, trusting. And his faith was coming out. And his faith surely is a challenge to It's been a challenge and is being a challenge to me. It's so easy to trust God when all is well. But when life gets difficult, to back off. Not Habakkuk. Not Habakkuk. That wasn't his way of thinking. He was going to trust God whatever happens. And look at the, the, the delight that he expresses. When you read on through the book, you come to these amazing chapters, the words, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. A scene of desolation. Famine. With all the diseases that would accompany that. That's the situation he sees when the Babylonians come, on, come in. And that he, yet he writes, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Look at it. The sovereign Lord is my strength, he goes on to say. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. No wavering, constant relationship with God why? how could he be that? because he had proved God so many times in his own life previously he knew that whatever life held in the present he would get the strength and the help and the confidence from God that he needed Francoise Fenelon he was a very spiritual person and this was one of the things that he wrote was memorable. It is when God appears to have abandoned us that we must abandon ourselves most wholly to him. So when you feel 
God's left me. That's the time you cling closest to him. Reaffirming your faith, your trust, your confidence. And that summarizes Habakkuk's thoughts. So what can we learn from Habakkuk? The dilemmas we shall experience. Look at these words. Good people do not escape all troubles. They have them too. But the Lord helps him in them all. That little conjunction just changes that. We're the same as every other person in the world. Christians, no difference. We have the same problems that are Christians today, even in church this morning, who face the same problem that many people are facing out there. Redundancies with all the heartache and the pain and the questioning of self-worth and why. We're no different. The good people do not escape all trouble. We have them too. But as a Christian, we have something extra that people who sadly have not yet come to faith don't have. They don't have God. And that's what makes Christians different. We're the same as everybody else. The same trials, the same pains, the same struggles, everything, the same challenges. But no matter what life throws at us, God is there with us. That's the change. And look at this as well. We read, Jesus said, you will suffer in this world. He never promised, what is it, I never promised you a rose garden. He never promised us a rose garden. And I'm glad because if you fall into a rose garden, what are you going to come up like? You're going to be bloodied and messed and in pain. So I don't like this picture of a rose garden. I wouldn't want one in case I fail. So Jesus didn't promise us that. He said, you will in this life suffer. And then Paul said, our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory given to us in heaven. You know, when you look back and get to heaven, when you get to heaven and you look back, the Bible says what will happen is you'll have a flash. Well, maybe this isn't the Bible. Maybe this is people like me. You'll have a flash of memory and you'll recall all that's gone, all the tears, all the suffering, and then you'll see Jesus who loved you through it all, who died for you. And then the hymn writer said, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. In the book that that man, the sermon that that man wrote on, that I mentioned at the beginning, on suffering, he tells the story of a British church leader who met this young man who as a baby fell down the stairs and his back was absolutely shattered. He was in and out of hospital. He was 17 at the time of the conversation with this British church leader. And the the man had asked, how many times have you been in hospital? He said, I've been there 13 years. That's where he had spent most of his life, in hospital. And he still maintained, God is fair. And this person said, are you serious? God is fair. And you think that is fair. You've lived for 17 years and 13 of them basically you've spent in hospital. You call that fair? Do you know what the young man replied? God has eternity to make it up to me. God has eternity 
to make it up to me. And so it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. We'll not, we'll not be excused from the dilemmas. We'll have these dilemmas, but we look forward as Christians. And so what about us as we move on with life? We hope this morning, don't we? All of us, being honest, hope that no disaster will befall us or our loved ones. We just hope for that. We want. We're human beings. We're frail. We want a problem-free, trouble-free life. We want that. And honestly, to say you don't, I think is there's some I would want to they used to say when I was growing go get your head searched. You know, that's what it was saying in the North of Ireland. Get your head looked at. And and they say you're you're not all there when you're thinking like that and expressing the reality. And let's not pretend to be super supermen and superwomen. You know, we don't want all these things to go wrong in our lives. That's the reality. We don't. But guess what? They do. They do. If life becomes difficult for us, even humanly speaking, disastrous, how should we react as Christians? Where should we turn? Yes, we go to the health centre. Yes, we see our doctors. Yes, we find our consultants. Yes, we submit ourselves to treatment. But where should we be going? First and foremost and throughout the period of the problem. We should be going here. To the God who is revealed to us in here. As a God who loves and a God who cares. The dedication we should exhibit. We should remain as faithful to God during the trials as we are when we're having a ball that's the situation we should not turn against God or doubt his love you've heard me and I'm sure many other people say William Cooper the brilliant amazing incredible hymn writer was a man who suffered through his life with very severe depression Attempted suicide, everything. And he wrote some amazing hymns. And one of the hymns he wrote had this verse in it. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling, and I added, loving face. And William Cooper from personal experience was saying that in the depths of my despair and depression I found God there. How can we maintain that attitude? The delight we should have experienced. Past experiences should keep us trusting. And you know when a new experience that's hard comes along it's easy to forget the way God proved himself in the past. We need to rejoice and recall. Habakkuk demonstrates it can be done. So did Job. 
Job tore his robe in grief. Everything taken from him apart from his quote nagging wife. Everything taken but that. His family, his farm, everything. Job tore his robe in grief, shaved his head, fell to the ground to worship. To worship. And said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken away. That is a statement of faith. Faith. The people who took his sons were cruel people. They raided them. That was the reality. But he chose to say, well, behind all that I can see with my eyes, I believe that God was there. He allowed this to happen. I don't understand it. But I'm going to trust him through it. And in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. He went on to say, though he slay me, Yet will I trust him. Peter and John, when they were persecuted and beaten and battered, they left the council rejoicing. Stephen, when he was being stoned to death, looked up and said, I see Jesus. And Paul learned from Stephen, and when he was in the cell in Philippi, at midnight he was singing praises to God. Midnight, not midday, midnight. Singing praises to God. I was blessed, and I finish with this, the words of D.L. Moody. Trust in yourself, and you are doomed to disappointment. That's the start. Trust in your friends, and they will die and leave you. Trust in money, and you may have it taken away from you. Trust in reputation, and some slanderous tongues will blast it. But trust in God, and you are never to be confounded in time or eternity. Hebrews 11, a whole list of ordinary men and women, and they triumphed through their trust and their faith. And my prayer is that whatever life brings to you and brings to me and brings to your family and my family whatever happens that somehow by the grace of God we will remain faithful to him and we can trust him through our trials before Lindsay sings to us let us pray. Heavenly Father, there's not one family probably in this room this morning represented that can't recall and remember immediately difficulties and problems that they're facing in their lives. We thank you for the words of that Paul heard when he asked for relief and release from problems. God's message was, I can't do that. But, but, every day, every moment of every day, 
every time the pain or the pressure increases, my grace will be sufficient for you. And Father, he proved that during his ministry. We ask today for each of us here that you would help us to go forward with such confidence and to prove you as a faithful God as we were singing earlier and enable us to bless your name as we sang earlier also. Lord, hear us, we pray, and keep us in your love and in your grace. Um.